Section 46 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by david hume volume one f section forty six chapter seventy one part five these views of the prince were seconded by the princess herself who as she was possessed many virtues was a most obsequious wife to a husband who in the judgment of the generality of her sex would have appeared so little attractive and amiable all considerations were neglected when they came in competition with what she deemed her duty to the prince when danby and others of her partisans wrote her an account of their schemes and proceedings she expressed great displeasure and even transmitted their letters to her husband as a sacrifice to conjugal fidelity the princess anne also concurred in the same plan for the public settlement and being promised an ample revenue was content to be postponed in the succession to the crown and as the title of her infant brother was in the present establishment entirely neglected she might on the whole deem herself in point of interest a gainer by this revolution the chief parties therefore being agreed the convention passed a bill in which they settled the crown on the prince and princess of orange the sole administration to remain in the prince the princess of denmark to succeed after the death of the prince and princess of orange her posterity after those of the princess but before those of the prince by any other wife the convention annexed to this settlement of the crown a declaration of rights where all the points which had of late years been disputed between the king and people were finally determined and the powers of royal prerogative were more narrowly circumscribed and more exactly defined than in any former period of the english government thus we have seen through the course of four reigns a continual struggle maintained between the crown and the people privilege and prerogative were ever at variance and both parties besides the present object of dispute had many latent claims which on a favorable occasion they produced against their adversaries governments too steady and uniform as they are seldom free so are they in the judgment of some attended with another sensible inconvenience they abate the active powers of men depress courage invention and genius and produce a universal lethargy in the people though this opinion may be just the fluctuation and contest it must be allowed of the english government were during these reigns much too violent both for the repose and safety of the people foreign affairs at this time were either entirely neglected or managed to pernicious purposes and in the domestic administration there was felt a continued fever either secret or manifest sometimes the most furious convulsions and disorders the revolution forms a new epoch in the constitution and was probably attended with consequences more advantageous to the people than barely freeing them from an exceptionable administration by deciding many important questions in favor of liberty 
and still more by that great precedent of deposing one king and establishing a new family it gave such an ascendant to popular principles as has put the nature of the english constitution beyond all controversy and it may be justly affirmed without any danger of exaggeration that we in this island have ever since enjoyed if not the best system of government at least the most entire system of liberty that ever was known amongst mankind to decry with such violence as is affected by some the whole line of stuart to maintain that their administration was one continued encroachment on the incontestable rights of the people is not giving due honor to that great event which not only put a period to their hereditary succession but made a new settlement of the whole constitution the inconveniences suffered by the people under the first two reigns of that family for in the main they were fortunate proceeded in great measure from the unavoidable situation of affairs and scarcely anything could have prevented those events but such vigor of genius in the sovereign attended with such good fortune as might have enabled him entirely to overpower the liberties of his people while the parliaments in those reigns were taking advantage of the necessities of the prince and attempting every session to abolish or circumscribe or define some prerogative of the crown and innovate in the usual tenor of government what could be expected but that the prince would exert himself in defending against such inveterate enemies an authority which during the most regular course of the former english government had been exercised without dispute or controversy and though charles the second in sixteen seventy two may with reason be deemed the aggressor nor is it possible to justify his conduct yet were there some motives surely which could engage a prince so soft and indolent and at the same time so judicious to attempt such hazardous enterprises he felt that public affairs had reached a situation at which they could not possibly remain without some further innovation frequent parliaments were become almost absolutely necessary to the conducting of public business yet these assemblies were still in the judgment of the royalist much inferior in dignity to the sovereign whom they seemed better calculated to counsel than control the crown still possessed considerable power of opposing parliaments and had not as yet acquired the means of influencing them hence a continual jealousy between these parts of the legislature hence the inclination mutually to take advantage of each other's necessities hence the impossibility under which the king lay of finding ministers who could at once be serviceable and faithful to him if he followed his own choice in appointing his servants without regard to their parliamentary interest a refractory session was instantly to be expected if he chose them from among the leaders of popular assemblies they either lost their influence with the people by adhering to the crown or they betrayed the crown in order to preserve their influence neither hampden whom charles i was willing to gain at any price nor shaftesbury whom charles the second after the popish plot attempted to engage in his counsels would renounce their popularity for the precarious and as they esteemed it deceitful favor of the prince the root of their authority they still thought to lie in the parliament 
and as the power of that assembly was not yet uncontrollable, they still resolved to augment it, though at the expense of the royal prerogatives. It is no wonder that these events have long, by the representations of faction, been extremely clouded and obscured. No man has yet arisen who has paid an entire regard to truth, and has dared to expose her, without covering or disguise, to the eyes of the prejudiced public. Even that party amongst us which boast of the highest regard to liberty has not possessed sufficient liberty of thought in this particular, nor has been able to decide impartially of their own merit compared with that of their antagonist. More noble, perhaps, in their ends, and highly beneficial to mankind, they must also be allowed to have often been less justifiable in the means, and in many of their enterprises to have paid more regard to political than to moral considerations. Obliged to court the favor of the populace, they found it necessary to comply with their rage and folly, and have even, on many occasions, by propagating calumnies, and by promoting violence, served to infatuate as well as corrupt that people to whom they made a tender of liberty and justice. Charles I was a tyrant, a papist, and a contriver of the English massacre. The Church of England was relapsing fast into idolatry. Puritanism was the only true religion, and the covenant the favorite object of heavenly regard. Through these delusions the party proceeded, and, what may seem wonderful, still to the increase of law and liberty, till they reached the imposture of the popish plot, a fiction which exceeds the ordinary bounds of vulgar credulity. However singular these events may appear, there is really nothing altogether new in any period of modern history, and it is remarkable that tribunitial arts, though sometimes useful in a free constitution, have usually been such as men of probity and honor could not bring themselves either to practice or approve. The other faction, which, since the revolution, has been obliged to cultivate popularity, sometimes found it necessary to employ like artifices. The Whig party, for a course of nearly seventy years, has, almost without interruption, enjoyed the whole authority of government, and no honors or offices could be obtained but by their countenance and protection. But this event, which in some particulars has been advantageous to the state, has proved destructive to the truth of history, and has established many gross falsehoods which it is unaccountable how any civilized nation could have embraced with regards to its domestic occurrences. Compositions the most despicable, both for style and matter, have been extolled and propagated and read, as if they had equaled the most celebrated remains of antiquity. And forgetting that a regard to liberty, though a laudable passion, ought commonly to be subordinate to a reverence for established government, the prevailing faction has celebrated only the partisans of the former, who pursued as their object the perfection of civil society, and has extolled them at the expense of their antagonist, who maintained those maxims that are essential to its very existence. But extremes of all kinds are to be avoided, and though no one will ever please either faction by moderate opinions, it is there we are most likely to meet with truth and certainty.
we shall subjoin to this general view of the english government some account of the state of the finances arms trade manners arts between the restoration and revolution the revenue of charles the second as settled by the long parliament was put upon a very bad footing it was too small if they intended to make him independent in the common course of his administration it was too large and settled during too long a period if they resolved to keep him in entire dependence the great debts of the republic which were thrown upon that prince the necessity of supplying the naval and military stores which were entirely exhausted that of repairing and furnishing his palaces all these causes involved the king in great difficulties immediately after his restoration and the parliament was not sufficiently liberal in supplying him perhaps too he had contracted some debts abroad and his bounty to the distressed cavaliers though it did not correspond either to their services or expectations could not fail in some degree to exhaust his treasury the extraordinary sums granted the king during the first years did not suffice for those extraordinary expenses and the excise and customs the only constant revenue amounted not to nine hundred thousand pounds a year and fell much short of the ordinary burdens of government the addition of hearth money in sixteen sixty two and of other two branches in sixteen sixty nine and sixteen seventy brought up the revenue to one million three hundred and fifty eight thousand pounds as we learn from lord danby's account but the same authority informs us that the yearly expense of government was at that time one million three hundred and eighty seven thousand seven hundred and seventy pounds we learn from that lord's memoirs that the receipts of the exchequer during six years from sixteen seventy three to sixteen seventy nine were about eight millions two hundred thousand pounds or one million three hundred and sixty six thousand pounds a year see likewise page one sixty nine mentioning contingencies which are always considerable even under the most prudent administration those branches of revenue granted in sixteen sixty nine and sixteen seventy expired in sixteen eighty and were never renewed by parliament they were computed to be above two hundred thousand pounds a year it must be allowed because asserted by all contemporary authors of both parties and even confessed by himself that king charles was somewhat profuse and negligent but it is likewise certain that a very rigid frugality was requisite to support the government under such difficulties it is a familiar rule in all business that every man should be paid in proportion to the trust reposed in him and to the power which he enjoys and the nation soon found reason from charles's dangerous connections with france to repent their departure from that prudential maxim indeed could the parliaments in the reign of charles i have been induced to relinquish so far their old habits as to grant that prince the same revenue which was voted to his successor or had those in the reign of charles the second conferred on him as large a revenue as was enjoyed by his brother all the disorders in both reigns might easily have been prevented and probably all reasonable concessions to liberty might peaceably have been obtained from both monarchs but these assemblies unacquainted with public business and often actuated by faction and fanaticism could never be made sensible but too late and by fatal experience of the incessant change of times and situations 
the French ambassador informs his court that Charles was very well satisfied with his share of power, could the Parliament have been induced to make him tolerable easy in his revenue. If we estimate the ordinary revenue of Charles II at one million two hundred thousand pounds a year during his whole reign, the computation will rather exceed than fall below the true value. The Convention Parliament, after all the sums which they had granted the king towards the payment of old debts, threw, the last day of their meeting, a debt upon him amounting to one million seven hundred and forty-three thousand two hundred and sixty-three pounds. All the extraordinary sums which were afterwards voted him by Parliament amounted to eleven millions four hundred and forty-three thousand four hundred and seven pounds, which, divided by twenty-four, the number of years which that king reigned, make four hundred and seventy-six thousand eight hundred and eight pounds a year. During that time he had two violent wars to sustain with the Dutch, and in 1678 he made expensive preparations for a war with France. In the first Dutch war, both France and Denmark were allies to the United Provinces, and the naval armaments in England were very great, so that it is impossible he could have secreted any part, at least any considerable part, of the sums which were then voted him by Parliament. To these sums we must add about one million two hundred thousand pounds, which had been detained from the bankers on shutting up the exchequer in sixteen seventy two. The king paid six per cent for this money during the rest of his reign. It is remarkable that, notwithstanding this violent breach of faith, the king, two years after, borrowed money at eight per cent, the same rate of interest which he had paid before that event, a proof that public credit, instead of being so delicate a nature as we are apt to imagine, is, in reality, so hardy and robust that it is very difficult to destroy it. The revenue of James was raised by the Parliament to about one million eight hundred and fifty thousand pounds, and his income as Duke of York being added, made the whole amount to two millions a year, a sum well proportioned to the public necessities, but enjoyed by him in too independent a manner. The national debt at the Revolution amounted to one million fifty-four thousand nine hundred and twenty-five pounds. The militia fell much to decay during these two reigns, partly by the policy of the kings, who had entertained a diffidence of their subjects, partly by that ill-judged law which limited the king's power of mustering and arraying them. In the beginning, however, of Charles's reign, the militia was still deemed formidable. De Witt, having proposed to the French king an invasion of England during the First Dutch War, that monarch replied, that such an attempt would be entirely fruitless, and would tend only to unite the English. In a few days, said he, after our landing, there will be fifty thousand men at least upon us. Charles, in the beginning of his reign, had in pay near five thousand men, of guards and garrisons. At the end of his reign he augmented this number to near eight thousand. James, on Monmouth's rebellion, had on foot about fifteen thousand men, and when the Prince of Orange invaded him, there were no fewer than thirty thousand regular troops in England. The English navy, during the greater part of Charles's reign, made a considerable figure, for number of ships, valor of the men, 
and conduct of the commanders. Even in 1678, the fleet consisted of 83 ships, besides 30 which were at that time on the stocks. On the king's restoration, he found only 63 vessels of all sizes. During the latter part of Charles's reign, the navy fell somewhat to decay, by reason of the narrowness of the king's revenue. But James, soon after his accession, restored it to its former power and glory, and before he left the throne carried it much further. The administration of the admiralty under Pepys is still regarded as a model for order and economy. The fleet at the Revolution consisted of 173 vessels of all sizes, and required 42,000 seamen to man it. That king, when Duke of York, had been the first inventor of sea-signals. The military genius during these two reigns had not totally decayed among the young nobility. Dorset, Mulgrave, Rochester, not to mention Ossory, served on board the fleet, and were present in the most furious engagements against the Dutch. The commerce and riches of England did never, during any period, increase so fast as from the restoration to the Revolution. The two Dutch wars, by disturbing the trade of that republic, promoted the navigation of this island, and after Charles had made a separate peace with the states, his subjects enjoyed unmolested the trade of Europe. The only disturbance which they met with was from a few French privateers who infested the channel, and Charles interposed not in behalf of his subjects with sufficient spirit and vigor. The recovery or conquest of New York and the Jerseys was a considerable accession to the strength and security of the English colonies, and together with the settlement of Pennsylvania and Carolina, which was effected during that reign, extended the English empire in America. The persecutions of the dissenters, or, more properly speaking, the restraints imposed upon them, contributed to augment and people these colonies. Dr. Davenant affirms that the shipping of England more than doubled during these twenty-eight years. Several new manufactures were established, in iron brass, silk, hats, glass, paper, etc. One brewer, leaving the Low Countries when they were threatened with a French conquest, brought the art of dyeing woolen cloth into England, and by that improvement saved the nation great sums of money. The increase of coinage during these two reigns was ten millions two hundred and sixty-one thousand pounds. A board of trade was erected in 1670, and the Earl of Sandwich was made president. Charles revived and supported the charter of the East India Company, a measure whose utility is by some thought doubtful. He granted a charter to the Hudson's Bay Company, a measure probably hurtful. We learn from Sir Josiah Child that in 1688 there were on the change more men worth ten thousand pounds than there were in 1650 worth a thousand, that five hundred pounds with a daughter was, in the latter period, deemed a larger portion than two thousand in the former, that gentlewomen in those earlier times thought themselves well clothed in a serge gown which a chambermaid would, in 1688, be ashamed to be seen in, and that, besides the great increase of rich clothes, plate, jewels, and household furniture, coaches were in that time augmented a hundredfold. 
End of section 46, chapter 71, part 5. Recording by Jim Dennison. J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N voice.com.